Welcome to another episode of Bringing Down the Grindhouse, a podcast where we discuss horror in media. And tonight, heathens, pagans, heretics, they've frightened the world for so long. And how? Join us on part two of our exploration of witchcraft. I'm Mitch. I'm Mer. I'm Justine. I'm Jonathan. I'm Dorian, or Danko, or Pig Person, and how? Nice voice crack, buddy. I know. I was thinking that, too. I, I want to say nothing. Damn, nothing gets by going. you guys. Shit. I'm Will. <laughs> so we brought Dorian on because we'll need a little bit of guidance going over all of this. There's a lot. There's a lot. It's a lot to go over. You know, we have all different parts of the world to explore because all of them have their own special flavor. Yeah, this yeah, is part two a really fun thing discussion. about witchcraft if it's it's not necessarily associated with any one region it's something that exists across all regions and all religions one of the really important things that we brought up last time is the fact that in a way witchcraft is this sense of the qualitative or the subjective in a world that is increasingly uh, quantitative and so it only makes sense that everyone would have their different variety be that on cultural lines or personal ones Great point, Dorian. I, I absolutely agree. <laughs> I cannot deal. <laughs> okay, sorry, sorry. So, to, to set the stage real quick, we're all shirtless in John's apartment right now. <laughs> and there's a fucking car like sounding like a goddamn snake over there. Yeah, that's the sound of someone eating a new belt, and they yeah. will really refuse to change it. I swear, yeah. that car's been squeaky ever since we moved here. You know, one reason that that person probably has that squeaky snake belt is because they are stuck in a world where one equals one, right? Where you make a certain exchange, you give up your labor, you're constantly diminishing yourself, and ultimately that leads you into the gutter, right? There is this constant exchange where you either find yourself on top or on bottom. But the thing that's interesting and so nefarious and, and, and bizarre about witchcraft over the ages is that witchcraft, at least to some minds, is the science of getting something for nothing. You see that in the, uh, the, the kind of uh, the prohibition of the female body. The female body is able to create life from itself. You're able to create new people, right? Which is one of the big things that they're most terrified of at first when they're talking about witchcraft. And so it's this kind of unequal exchange in the fact that it escapes from something like quant quantitative reasoning and capital that makes witchcraft so ominous to people that want to keep the status quo in line. People are afraid of concepts they can't understand. They'd rather just diminish a whole certain group and ostracize them rather than use them to work for each other's benefit and oftentimes it's because they're looking from a more limited perspective about what they're observing usually limited by their own belief systems cultural beliefs yada 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 so taking from this concept of something from nothing i did quite a bit of research before before coming in here because I was hmm. tasked with with covering both Hinduism and Asatru, which is the, like the Nordic, you know, belief. Yeah. So like your Nordic gods and stuff like that. And then Hinduism is from India as well. But um, one of the things with uh, with Hinduism where you would start is with this concept of, of Brahman, which is existence. 
She says, I am that which is. And the idea is that you are the universe. And that's sort of a, a concept that's around. But, I mean, Hinduism has a very complicated history as well with Definitely. all of that, too. <laughs> I've always liked that concept, though, about each person being like a fractal of the universe. I, I don't really say I subscribe to any one religious ideology or spiritual ideology, but that's definitely something I incorporate into my everyday practices is about every person being a reflection of a singular part of the universe, but collectively making up the universe. Is that along the lines of people who like that belief because we're all made from the same stuff? They get down to like, well, the universe is made of these elements. We're made of these elements. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't be too far to guess that we belong to this universe as much as it belongs to us. So within Hinduism, in, in particular, there was a very interesting uh, figure named, named Tankra. Yeah. Uh, I will miss, I have probably already mispronounced uh, his name, but yes, he was essentially, he was essentially a, like a Hindu shaman, I guess you could, you would say. Um, and his whole idea was preaching because there's like a divide in Hinduism where they have the, um, the Vaita and the Advaita. So the Advaita is not two, is what it literally means, and that's the idea that God is not separated from man. Mm -hmm. So that man and God are the same being. And then you have Vaita, which is they are separate. And this is something that was used by Hindu priests to separate the classes and whatnot. And you know, Yeah, and it seems that typically is associated with religions that use their ideologies as some form of control, specifically like Abrahamic religions, seeing God as being higher than thou, you know? Something separate from the human. In Hinduism, they use the, or not in Hinduism, but in India, they use the caste system long ago, which you basically have a hierarchy of sorts. And these ideas have basically like caused like the huge divide in different Indian cultures throughout throughout India in itself. So you know, but going back to to my boy uh, uh, Chankara, uh, he basically would stand outside and advocate for um, for. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, Advaita, which is the which is the not too sort of idea that you know we are we are joined together. And he would stand outside of temples and say, essentially, would say, "God and man are the same. Prove me wrong." He's basically just doing that that meme with the with the coffee cup and the, the desk and everything. <laughs> yeah. And like you know, he was basically like <laughs> India's weird Stephen Crowder in a sense. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> <laughs> Which is which is interesting because if you look at like Hindu Hindu like the polytheistic side of things, all of their their gods or like so you've got like you know you've got like Vishnu, Brahma, and Shiva are all sort of one of the same, and they, they're viewed that way, and they just take on many different forms as themselves. That's uh, this is probably way too much for this podcast. <laughs> um, it's it's too much for my normal podcast, I think, uh, but. This concept of uh, all of these different Hindu gods, this religion of a hundred thousand gods, all being kind of reflections and different kind of incarnations of one another, of one, it connects into this concept by, and again, I'm gonna I'm gonna make a pitch. I'm gonna do a pitch uh, through this. Go to my Instagram uh, page, Dank Deluz, D E L U Z E. Uh, that's how you spell Deluz. <laughs> anyway, uh, so Deleuze and Guattari, they come up with this concept, and really it's it's kind of uh, uh, them modifying Spinoza and a few other thinkers, but this concept is multiplicity. 
And uh, the way that they formulate it in a basic mathematical sense, and if you know, you know, uh, mathematics, this may make more sense to you, but it's n minus 1. And essentially the idea is that things are all part of uh, multiplicities wherein any kind of combination of these things does not produce a unity. Uh, and so there's this constant multiplication of everything compared to everything. Everything is constantly inter interaction with everything else. And so you can refer to yourself as a multiplicity, but upon yourself conferring that you are in fact a multiplicity, you're not necessarily saying that there are many within me, but you're saying that there are many without you as well, right? And so as soon as you were saying something like there are 100,000 gods, you're also saying that the 100,000 gods necessarily through their n-1 multiplicitous status, they bleed into the rest of the world, and everything else in the world is also part of that. And so that's a good way of understanding, though it's maybe a little convoluted for people that don't know theory and people who do, that it's a good way of describing this concept of I am, right? So oh. everyone is everyone, everyone is everything because everything is multiple, not necessarily just because everything is a unity. I will translate that. You, so, so uh, Dorian over here is basically just saying you are everything. Well, Pretty I would much. guess that it like preconditions someone to be more comfortable with the idea that everything is able to be combined that way. And so it then follows through with it on the various stories that you hear about these deities and the things that they do in everyday things. So when, when it comes to you are everything and everything is you, um, your environment in the universe sort of shape who you are as you shape it. Yeah. Right. And so this kind of comes into uh, one of the holidays or celebrations I looked up for um, for like the Hindu belief was uh, was bogey. I probably have mispronounced that as well, but it was essentially a ritualistic burning of derelict things and stuff. Oh that yeah, I've heard about you. this. They spend the entire day gathering useless items, you know, their attachment to different relations and things like that, and they just do a ceremonial burning of all of it. Yeah, it allows you some of form of renewal, and you're able to kind of progress forward. They use it a lot to get rid of items, say, that belong to someone who may have passed, and so in order to kind of cleanse themselves and be able to move forward with that, they'll, they'll find an item related to them that they no longer use, and it has, like, kind of lost a lot of meaning for them, so they're able to progress forward. Interesting stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um... I also I, I looked up a little bit Ooh. of like their uh, one of their one of their stories essentially for like for like the, like the Hindu polytheism right where you have the um, the Asura and the Deva who are essentially like two warring clans of like essentially angels and demons yeah so the Asura are more like warlike and you know the, the quote unquote evil side and then you have like the Deva who are like the good side um, and then you know like they want to seek they've lost a lot of people in this war between the two of them and they want to make the elixir of immortality <laughs> so essentially you know without getting too much into all of the names and not confuse everybody they essentially come to an agreement with each other that in order to make this we must churn the entire ocean so they grab a big they grab this big snake and the two <laughs> sides wrap it around a huge mountain and use it to churn the ocean to like basically lift the secrets and the mysteries of the ocean up so that they can create the elixir of life on the agreement that both of them can use it to rejuvenate their people. It's a beautiful story. It's wonderful. I think this is like part of the episode where we try to explain that although we're talking about witchcraft, uh, 
it does bleed into just regular plain old religion within and religious practices for many parts of the world that are not Europe. So we will be talking about several different geographical locations and like certain religions, although they're not technical, they're not, you know, on the books, witchcraft, their practices, their stories and their ideals ultimately come from a place of witchcraft, even though it's not called that. Yeah, that's something that was always interesting about witchcraft. It's commonly associated with certain religions. However, just because it is associated with religion doesn't mean a practitioner of that religion necessarily practices witchcraft as well. Just some religions have this sort of spiritual mysticism element to them. It was uh, like how Dorian was talking about last week, how uh, the sacrificial eating of the bread and the wine, that's a a witchcraft ritual, but we don't call it or see it as that. And, and part of something to make sense of that, and sorry, I'm gonna I'm doing a whole seminar in, of, on this in the morning, and uh, so it's on my mind, uh, and I have the book literally in my hand. Uh, I'm giving myself away, but there is this concept again by Deleuze and Guattari uh, of the jurist priest uh, and the magician king, right? And a big part of of it's it's essentially think of a political compass, right? So you have authoritarian on one end, you have libertarian on the other, uh, yada, yada, yada. But the, the thing that all of this ends up boiling down to is that there's on one side of this something like a royal science, which is something that you can absolutely make sense of and quantify. And on the other end of it, there is a nomad science, one that constantly changes and shifts and remodifies itself and problematizes itself. And the thing is that they don't exclude one another they are necessarily all part of the same community uh, functioning together. And so when you're looking at something like a religious tradition, and, and thank you, Mur, because that's something I really wanted to bring up as well. I think that's extremely important where, you know, we're bringing up a whole lot of like non-Christian religions and like referring to them as witchcraft, which isn't necessarily the case, but they contain that as does uh, Christianity, as you noted. Uh, and it's simply because of the fact that the flexible end of this, the quantitative end of this, is oftentimes referred to as witchcraft or spirituality, whereas the other end is referred to as religion. Um, so, like, this, like, you know, and this is kind of, I mean, I, I guess you being able to affect the universe and the universe being able to affect you um, ties in really well when it comes to, like, the Asatru beliefs, which is, like, your Nordic peoples and whatnot, because they had this idea of the Orle which is what is written and what is to be written sort of idea. So it's like, it's like you tell your own story, like along, you know, along the lines of fate, because they didn't believe in the idea of chance. They believed that the actions and deeds that you do in your life ultimately affect where you go, but we all end up in the same place at the end. So you can affect your passage through there. And then they had the verd, which was the inevitable so you like if you want to call it death, if you wanted to, like death is always the inevitable. You will always end up there. Mm-hmm. But what you do on the way there, your orle, is how you, you change it and make it a life worthwhile. Yeah, that's really great, and that's something that you see a lot in Christian theology as well, right? Um, which is you know my focus, so I'm going to bring it up all the time, at least when it comes to religions. Um, and so. I, I think I brought this up last time, but there's this bizarre paradox that occurs inside of Protestant theology where there is the sense of free will, but also predeterminism, like a Calvinist belief. And so if you go to heaven, it's because you were always destined to go there. But if you go to hell, it's because of your own free will, right? 
Um, that fits better into something like the other end of your research, which is the, the, the Hindu or the Buddhist uh, kind of end of this, which both of them ultimately have the same trajectory in the end, where you have something like that Orle, where you have this recurrence and constant suffering and reemergence of your own life and this idea of karmic uh, abundance, which leads to a continuation of life versus one escaping from desires and escaping from karma, not not having good karma. That's something we need to cl clear up, I think, people. Fucking, like, yoga moms. Uh, <laughs> like, <laughs> good... yoga moms. You don't, you don't want to have good karma. You just don't want to have karma. You don't want to yeah. have any karma. Zero karma is where you want to end up, unless you want to become a very specific type of Buddhist teacher, in which case you want to return constantly with as good of karma as you can to inform people. But... Generally speaking, you just don't want to have karma. You want to sit beneath the Bodhi tree and you want to become nothing. But in the end, after this constant recycling <laughs> of life and this constant reemergence of yourself, you find yourself at the point of nothing, at nirvana, at samadhi, right? And that is very uh, much the same thing as kind of what you were saying for the Nordic religions, I find. Well, uh, we did discuss about the Tibetan Book of the Dead back on the episode. Enter My the birthday void. episode. Yeah. That was wild. yeah. <laughs> that was a lot. Oh, oh, you're coming furiously to the mic. This, <laughs> this, uh, this sounds like a uh, like a brag of some sort, but it's not because I didn't understand any of this when I was younger. But I have a fucked up weird family with a lot of weird beliefs, and so one of the books that I first had when I was a child was an old copy of the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Oh, shit. Gnarly. That is one of the first things I ever had, and nice. it was illustrated. Oh, what? And so it had all of these different Buddhistic demons tearing you apart in all of the bardos afterwards, rending you into pieces, literally, in order to teach you that you don't exist. <laughs> and it's fucking insane. That's all. That's the whole thought I had. <laughs> Well, that's the thing, though, with this idea with, like, like you were saying, you want to be underneath the tree and you want to reach reincarnation. Uh, you don't want karma at all. It is like a, a little bit of a belief system. Like, people want to go out throughout their daily lives trying to do good when they can, stay away from evil when they can, quote, unquote, evil. Mm. But, you know, evil. It's, well, people really like to paint the picture in a, a black and white sort of thing when the yeah. entire universe is a gray area. Definitely. It's a spectrum of existence. I mean, this like I mean, this this idea of all of like the you being connected to the worlds and you affecting the worlds. It, I mean, because I mean, these 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 different faiths assume that there are different worlds as well. Like such as like the like in the Tibetan Book of the Dead as well. There are different areas you go after passing on and such. And this also relates to this also relates to the Nordic religions with the whole Yadrazel concept and having like nine different worlds there all fed by the well of Verd, which is where everybody pours all of their deeds and everything go into that. And it's sort of like the well of fate sort of idea. And so it like feeds the rest of the tree, which is very interesting that trees are always a um, center point yeah. of this as well. Trees of life, trees of death. A couple things. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Every time. Uh, but when it comes to this tree concept, if you go back to this con uh, conception from, uh, you know, Deleuze and Guattari, one of the things that they really want to focus on is this concept of arborescence versus something rhizomatic, right? 
And so what that is in layman's terms is that something that arborescence is something that constantly produces binaries. Like a, a tree branch breaks apart into two branches, even though it doesn't technically do that, but we'd like to imagine that it does. And then it branches off into two and it branches off to two and it's very Hegelian, whatever. And that's not actually how the world works. That's just how we like to imagine it works. Versus this rhizomatic concept where every part of it is a development of the whole, which then informs the whole, right? So every single time that something branches off, it branches off in many different ways and then informs the thing from which it branches off from. And so there's a really interesting religiosity, especially with this obsession with mold and fungus that everyone seems to have now. Like that's a big part of the zeitgeist currently. And I feel like people are kind of getting to know this new type of spirituality that just says that everyone knows everyone through this kind of fungal logic. <laughs> um, which, you know, Deleuze and Guattari were, you know, bringing up at the latter, you know, third of the 20th century. Um, but also to bring it more directly into the thinking around uh, the, uh, um, around doing what you need to do and having a certain tra- trajectory in your life, apologies, uh, and, and, and that issue, when it comes to Hinduism, the primary book that's used in most Hindu spaces that I've been in, uh, and I grew up with a lot of ashrams and stuff like that, was that out of the whole Ma- uh, Mahabharata, they instead just look at one conversation from the entire poem, right? Uh, which is, of course, the Bhagavad Gita. And in the Bhagavad Gita, the whole thing that's happening is Arjuna, this incredible warrior and archer, is fighting in this apocalyptic battle and doesn't really want to do it. And then Krishna comes to him and says, dude, you just got to fucking do the apocalypse. You just got to fucking do it. It's fine. But here's the thing, dude. You got to do a certain type of yogic thinking. And the really important thing about this yogic thinking is you got to remove yourself from it. You got to do your duty and not care about it. And so this removal from that motion of exchange, it's interesting because on one end, when it comes to like Western uh, uh, witchcraft and things like that, uh, which is, uh, again, as, as Murr kind of pointed out, a very kind of uh, loose concept. In the Western metaphysics, it's, it's gaining something uh, out of this strange kind of open space. But in a lot of things like Buddhist and Hindu metaphysics and, and you could call it witchcraft, it's finding a way to still interact and feed into the world without having an effect that is ultimately detrimental to you, right? To remove yourself. And so both are ultimately about a type of removal. So, I mean, there is definitely this, um, at least like, so I, I, I explored both of these pretty, both of these like different religions pretty fairly extensively. So, it, I mean, there's, they share very similar concepts. So you'll see that through a lot of different pagan religions, your ability to, not only influence the flow of time, but also, you know, influence its outcome in a sense. Well, I got a question. Yeah. So so we've talked about in the first episode of when we did this, we were talking about how the witchcraft is used specifically to prosecute a specific group of people. Is there something that was done similarly in India or any of the places that this is practiced where it like kind of separate it? Like it created a separation that they were like, no, this isn't the religion or spiritualism you should be following. It should be this. Like there's like a dominant versus... Something I mean, else. so, I mean, I guess you could, you could point to like, you could point to like, like, like Chankra's whole idea of that they're like, you know, God and man are the same. Right. They are both, they are both one uh, versus, but then there is the, the opposite of that, which is the Vita, 
which was the idea that they are separate. They are separate, that God and man are separate beings. And then why would you believe any other way? That's so silly. You know, we are at beholden to these, you know, like, like, uh, beings and whatnot. So I guess you could say that that was in a way, it was in a way used to persecute classes in a way. So you believe, you believe Advaita. So, but, but like, so you are lesser than me who oh, is actually was beholden to these sort other. of to try to diminish the idea of the hierarchy and to allow people to sort of more easily blend together to be like, well, actually we're not living in this hierarchy because there's much greater things. Yeah, yeah. There, well, there was a group that would argue for that. Oh, gotcha. Um, but there was also the group that was essentially what you could argue that it is the reason why India has like a divide that it has now culturally is because of like these Hindu priests basically you know using that as for like a classist sort of uh, means to an end. There are certain portions of Hindu culture where, in fact, the higher castes are able to do things like eat beef, right? And so the sense that there are prohibitions that are placed against people that stop applying at some point on the way up is uh, telling to me from a Marxist perspective. Uh, but also the sense that there is the... Um, extreme violence towards women that is often seen as well as this concept of the caste of the untouchables also continues to press this kind of Marxian uh, theory of faith and religion that I laid out in the previous podcast. I mean, in, <clears throat> in like the old Nordic stories, there's like the Vanir and the Aesir, which are, you know, the, the uh, Aesir are essentially your Thor, Odin, et cetera, et cetera. You know, the, that section of God, the really famous ones, most of them are attributed to war and whatnot, which I think we view as a fairly masculine concept, typically. Um, and then you have the, the Vanir, which is where, like, Freya comes from. So you have, you know, and, like, like Noldor and, uh, and Freyr also. But, I mean, Freya herself was, in the stories anyway, is seen as the one who has the control over magic, the ability oh, gotcha. to see the yeah. future. And so there's actually a war between the two of them for quite a while until both sides end up realizing we're equally powerful and we can't really destroy each other. So we might as well just join up because that's how things are going to be. That feels like a common shared thing amongst a lot of spirituality beliefs that there is this a battle that is ongoing and that you can join sort of either side and help with that. Mm -hmm. It's I seem to hear a lot about modern spirituality where you're able to do some sort of work towards that and it ends up being specific rituals or practices that you can do on your own to, to assist either yourself or other people around you. That seems to be something that's common. I believe I brought this up at the end of the last podcast, but there's an etymological tie behind the word grammar and glamour. Uh, and I was talking to you a little bit beforehand, Justine, about glamour magic, right? Oh, yeah, a little joke here. <laughs> uh, and, and I think that's important because when we're talking about this idea of grammar and regimentation and war and everything having to make total sense and be mathematized, and placing that in a space where it is not just seen as equitable, but also kind of in a in a uh, super structural way, like believed as equitable, that uh, that glamour and beauty and aesthetics and thought are equal to the power of war is an extremely telling and interesting thing about uh, any one of these belief systems. And the really interesting thing about 
something like the Viking belief systems, and I only really know the Viking belief systems through Western Europe and through Iceland, um, and so I'm missing a lot of it. Um, but my understanding of it is that it is deeply informed by a lot of the uh, strange paradoxes that exist ex inside of Christianity, but also it is informed in some way by a lot of the beliefs that are passed on by someone like the Aryans of uh, India, which, uh, apart from popular or racist belief, are not in fact a race of people or a type of people, but simply a caste. Uh, mm. So a caste passing on a certain type of knowledge. And so this balancing between grammar and glamour, between war and aesthetics, is something that's very present in all of these belief systems. <laughs> Mur. There's so much knowledge. <laughs> I can't contain it. Oh, so knowledge. I mean if we if we go back to like you know, like your like Nordic Nordic ideals, you have things like especially when we're talking about structure. Structure you have like the nine noble virtues, which I think might be a fairly like newer a new age concept. Um, because a lot of what the Nordic people did was was spoken. It was oral tradition that was passed on. But um, yeah, it was probably more nailed down as people got more specific about what they thought it yeah, was. I yeah, I mean, when you when you start reading things like you know, like the the poetic Eda, so that's all of like the stories and whatnot. Yeah. A lot of those, which was written by uh, uh, Snorri Snorri Sturluson, um, who was a Christian, by the way, which is very interesting. So he decided to write down all of these things as opposed to the you know your, your traditional Nordic person who did not. But um, and then you have like uh, then you have the Havamal, which is like Odin's teachings, which are a lot of them are they're really funny ones like eat food before going to your friend's house so that you're not, you know, cranky when you get there. <laughs> That's and, real as fuck. Just life hacks. Yeah, really, though. Yeah. yeah. And then, yeah, j exactly. Like Odin's life hacks, essentially, is what that <laughs> oh book is. And it's like, you know, a lot of it's how to be a good host. Don't get like one of them is like don't get so drunk that you can't remember what you did that evening. Fair. <laughs> which is so interesting coming from a group of people who have been assumed by like popular culture to just be a bunch of drunk marauding idiots right. for the most part. Constantly for the most drunk. part. Yeah. So I, I, I do have a gap, uh, as I just said, uh, but I've just realized that Snorri Sturlson, if in fact, uh, what Mitch is saying is correct, which I believe to be the case is also the author of the text that informed me about, uh, the Viking religions. Because my Viking uh, specialties are from the Inglinga Saga, which is from Iceland, uh, who also wrote that. Also, what a hilarious name. Yeah. Snorri Sturlson. Snorri. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, to, to be fair, though, and, and I know we're saying a lot of this in jest, but when we're talking about people who were, like, drunkenly marauding, we're also talking about people who had, like, we had direct democracy or something close to it. We had uh, women in places of power. We had uh, people essentially and literally doing rap battles with one another. It just had yeah. four rhyme instead of end rhyme. Like, these are a very actually complex uh, social system that really doesn't get the credit that it deserves for its nuance, you know? Of course, they're, like, biting their shields and losing their shit because they ate some fucking, like, cot mixed with mushrooms or something. But they also have this extremely complex uh, social system, which is largely, you know, erased by this type of Christianity that gets picked up in the islands. 
Uh, and peninsulas. <laughs> so this is so this is one then one of the areas that we can trace from what we began in our first episode was here's where this sort of idea of uh, people being prosecuted for witchcraft, possibly different spirituality, and then it had been done at the same time in other areas, including somewhere like India or any of the other places as well as the like Nordic um, religions that are kind of misunderstood a bit as, as it is now because a lot of it was an oral tradition that you would end up speaking to somebody who was within the culture. And then as you modernize and spread out, it kind of deteriorates. It and so this the is the longest game of telephone. <laughs> yeah. You get, else. you get stories that are not quite clear. And then somebody comes up with a new sort of idea of what they think off of that original text. So similar to, to Hinduism in a sense, you have different sects of people, like, so different, different people coming from different areas of right. the world. So you know, in India, there's, I mean, there's, I, I am so bad with geography, but there's a bunch of little countries inside of India that have different, like, they'll call their gods different names and things like that. So they'll be known differently. You know, probably to some, Ganesha rides upon an elephant. To some, he rides upon a mouse. You know, <laughs> and, and, like, and, and things like that. And then also, you know, different ways of viewing those, um, those gods as well. And it's similar for the Nordic peoples where they had different names for them. Um, they maybe represented something different. And then you have that dichotomy between, you know, the like the Aesir and the Vanir and then the Deva and the Asura who are basically battling forces mm-hmm. who essentially come together and work together and everything is better for that. Yeah. For them. And they end up like, like the stories reflect that they believe, at least in my opinion, anyway, it structurally says that they believe that joining together is the way to do it. And this is reflected in, you know, there's a, 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 like a I guess you would call it, like, there's a Nordic um, a ritual called the Sumbel, which is uh, a very interesting um, bit where you gather together with friends and whatnot, and you make a toast to, you know, whichever gods you'd like to listen. And you essentially, everyone goes around and they boast of their deeds. <laughs> so it's sort of like, you know, you get together and you're like, all right, so, you know, Odin, here are our deeds. You know, this is a toast to you. And you do it in three rounds, usually with a horn and drinking and whatnot. And then everybody says, you know, at the end of it, it's a free round where everybody can essentially boast of something awesome that they did. Something worthy worthy to write in their verd sort of idea, <laughs> you know. that they, And so it's it, – and it brings community, though, because everyone's talking about how cool – I am individually yeah, and then what I bring to the rest. It kind of reminds me of being like an old version of a Facebook post. Everybody yeah. gets together and shares what cool thing happened to them this week. <laughs> That's kind of true This is just actually. what they did before they had social media. Yeah. They all sat around the table, had a drink together and chatted it out. Well, it's, it's usually going to be, like you said, the people around there. So like what Mitch was mentioning before, how India kind of uh, consists of this whole, like the subcontinent is basically going to be like, uh, Pakistan, Bhutan, Nepal, the Maldives, the Bangladesh, like that's all going to be the people who came together and created the different versions of what you're explaining and why they're slightly different, similar to how a lot of the ideals and uh, the spirituality in Africa will be the same because of all the different yeah. places in Africa that all have different beliefs, but similar. You'll, yeah, usually so have, you'll have overlap. You'll, you'll have like Germanic interpretations as well. If you're going talking about the Nordic countries too, you'll talk about your Germanic interpretations, your Norwegian interpretations, your Swedish interpretations, your Icelandic interpretations of these particular deities, what they mean to them um, and their own, like their own stories and things. Like I know that uh, they, you know, like Dorian was mentioning the rap battles and there is a funny story about Thor where he wants to take a ship and instead, like, and otherwise he has to cross the ocean and walk through it. 
and instead the um the 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 uh what do you call it? what uh, what do you what do you call a person who is a ship carrier i forget the a name. captain i i guess so <laughs> I get the oarsman there you go i guess you'd call him something along those the lines oarsman. um yeah but uh, but essentially what happens is the, the in the conversation the oarsman gets incredibly more like insulting and it turns into them having essentially a rap battle with each other until uh, thor yes. is just like you know what fuck you i'm just gonna walk across the ocean yeah. i don't need to deal with your bullshit and I'm going to carry this whale with me, too. <laughs> <laughs> Just for funsies. Well, there's also this idea of uh, purification, which is seen throughout multiple countries. Um, I looked into the Shinto religion, and purification is in there. But a big part of the Hindu religion is going into the, the river. Uh, what is that? Ganges. Ganges, thank you. The river Ganges and uh, dipping yourself in it. It's a very dirty river physically, but spiritually it's a very clean river. And so uh, one cleanses oneself when they go in there and they do the ritual and they come out cleaner. However, not really physically, but spiritually, yes. Right. And, and this is something that's really common. And I, I, I believe, uh, Justine, you were uh, focusing a little bit on, on like Greek uh, I was just work, about right? to say, yeah. Right. So were you get about to bring up like Letha Lake and things like that? I was just going to bring up specifically how they go about doing rituals. I forget exactly what the name is. There's several parts to how, well, we call it the Greek paganism is called Hellenism or Hellenistic. Right. Yeah. And one of the things that they practice before doing any sort of communion with deities and spirits is to cleanse yourself both physically and spiritually. And oftentimes they will bathe themselves or wash their hands to physically clean the impurities off their body before communing with the spirits. And then also, if you want to do any major spiritual work, you want to try and cleanse any sort of baggage, per se, that you're holding on to. One of my favorite texts in the world, and this is Roman rather than Greek, but as many of us, I think, are aware they are almost the same thing in a lot yeah. of ways because one just steals from the other. Pretty much. Um, but Virgil in The Metamorphoses, one of the best poems slash books I have ever read. I love it so much. It's so funny and so brutal and so interesting. But at the end, he goes over the variety of apotheses, or apotheoses, rather. Sorry. Um, and what that means is one becoming like a god. And the way that that process always occurs is that you are in some way cleansed by generally something like, and this is going to be crazy to Christians, but something like liquid fire. <laughs> Whoa. And then you are made into something like a star. And we have Hercules. We have at least one of the emperors. We have Virgil himself who was made into one of these. But if we draw it back slightly... I have a couple little things to say. I, I, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry I'm like this. Uh, but uh, but there are four rivers of the afterlife in Greek and Roman mythos, right? And two of the most important and interesting rivers that you have to enter into and kind of root around in after you're dead are Phlegalon, which I'm pretty sure I'm pronouncing wrong, like I said, did not focus on that, and Lethe. And Phlegalon is the river of fire and wailing. So it's where you have everything burned away. And the other one is Lethe, which is the river where you forget. 
right? And so it's this purification through water and through fire that turns you into something that's able to be passed along, which fits in really well with something like Hinduism. It fits in really well with really all these beliefs. Um, I have another thing to say about uh, Snorri's stories, which is very fun to say, but I'll perhaps uh, give it a moment before I do that. So I think then at this point, we should move to a different area. Yes. So it, I think to me, in my mind, it makes sense to move east and move into sort of where like Japan would end up. Oh, hello. And other part, you know, because <laughs> even if you just go a couple thousand miles east or west, you're going to get something drastically different because of the conditions of the people there. You could even go up into Russia <laughs> and you get something completely different. So while I think uh, Mur preps uh, everything that he has, because I believe you're doing... Japan, right? Correct. Hell yeah. That's really exciting. I love this stuff. But I just want to tell a little story that Snorri Sturlson tells. A Snorri story. A Snorri story. <laughs> it's so fun to say. <laughs> so fun. That's catchy. Um, and I, I'm sorry. I tried looking it up. I, I don't have it around. I, I did, in fact, write like a, this lengthy paper on this, and yet I still forget the guy's name, but it doesn't really matter because he's an asshole. <laughs> Fair. But Sounds there was this wimpy kid, and he was one of the children of the Jarls. And he was not able to fight very well. And he would lose every wrestling fight he got into. And one day, there's this great feast, and there's a wrestling match, and he gets his ass kicked by everyone. And so his uncle, uh, someone the blind gives him a wolf's heart to eat. Does this sound Christian at all? You know? <laughs> no. And so he ends up eating this wolf's heart, and he grows up to be a cruel, cruel, manipulative, Machiavellian man. And he then goes on to do th all of these bizarre things during, like Mitch was talking about, these feast days, right? Where during the first feast day, he has everyone bring up a glass to take a toast. And they're about to do the toast and this whole grammary, glamoury kind of uh, magical, we're going to do a rap battle thing. <laughs> he does his toast, says, I'm cool as fuck. Fuck you guys. I don't care. He leaves the room and he lights everyone on fire. <laughs> oh, my God. Bless. All right. Then. Right. <laughs> this guy's a piece of shit. And so he kills all the Jarls. Oh, wow. and he becomes the Jarl. Yeah. Like he's he's daddy. now. That's some Game of Thrones shit. Uh, eventually, he also gets lit on fire and dies. But, <laughs> but that is the general kind of shtick of this, which is that there is this reciprocation that happens during feast days. That's extremely important. Oh, gotcha. And if you end up. If, if, number one, you end up stepping outside of your own capacities as someone that has, like, an ability, right? If you if you cheat at something like wrestling or maybe at capitalism or something, then you're a bad guy. But also, <laughs> if you make a trade, that's bad, right? You're also a bad guy, right? And that's so a it's, parameter. It's, it's really fascinating. But, yeah, that's, that's, that, that's my story. That's my snorry story. Thank you for your snorry story, <laughs> Dorian. Oh, Yes, this is great. <laughs> Damn, that's amazing. And now we're we're getting on to our our oh, cart and we're shit. shipping outies. Oh man, now I gotta wake up. Okay, <laughs> it's like I would assume it's a lot considering there's several thousand years of change. Yeah, <laughs> and it goes into modern times a little. It's really funny. Yeah, I believe, yeah, definitely. Uh, there's an embrace okay. of tradition. So my area was Japan. 
I looked into it extensively, and I came up with a lot of what we've already been talking about, uh, which is the religion of Shinto. Uh, like we said before, although not witchcraft or categorized as witchcraft, the many religious beliefs that are within Japan th- through the Shinto are very mirrored in the, the way that they are witchcraft, but not classified as such. So I will be discussing that right now. So this was a 4th century religion, and it is indigenous to Japan, so it started there. It also mirrors somewhat a little bit of Buddhism, or like Buddhism had um, here's and there's with them, but ultimately Shinto is Japan's religion. It is their number one kind of thing, other than like Christianity and Buddhism as well. Which is, I feel like, unique in the sense because at at most of the other ones, you'll find that they're speaking about a, a place that's been colonized. Right. Really heavily. Whereas Japan did deal with something as far as like the Westernization that came in a different form. It wasn't ex- like it wasn't necessarily the same that you might see in, say, like India, where where Britain was just like, we're going to r- stay here and like take over <laughs> for however long. You're going to listen to what we're doing. And I have some shit to say about colonialized Japan. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Christianity there. That's oh. the most brutal. maybe. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'll continue by saying the main belief of Shinto as like also mirrored with the Nordic religions is that all things have a certain energy to them. It is known as Kami, which translates to Japan's word for God, spirits, or powers. And that there's a respect for each living thing through Kanagata, which means the n- maintaining the natural order of Kami. And throughout Shinto, the ideas of spirits and demons and aberrations also hold true. And they carry through to daily life within Japanese daily life. This is through like shrines as well as ritual ceremonies that are to protective elders and spirits who are also said to still live in the same realm. So basically they take these practices and they do them on a daily basis. There's a daily basis, a weekly basis, monthly basis, yearly basis for all these similar uh, rituals that they do. And um, like I said, not categorized as witchcraft, but very similar in regards to it with the beliefs in their system. Um, so they, these rituals can be very small, uh, such as like sumo wrestlers throwing salt around the ring to purify it or large scale, like ice baths where at, at the end of the year during nighttime, they will throw ice cold buckets of water on each other. Basically like a lot of purification is mirrored throughout, uh, most religions because dealing with spirits, you have to be somewhat I don't know, clean or yes, or, or something of the sort to like cross over and connect with the other side. Is this similar to the idea of like, uh, if you don't cleanse yourself, a sort of residue stays with you, like from things that you encounter throughout your life, which can include like spirits that come from certain places that you visit or even people that are kind of left behind spirits and things like that. That's why there's so many cleansing rituals. Yeah. I, I ultimately believe that if you go to a tour of Japan and you go to one of these like sacred ritual sites, they will have cleansing stations where you have to do a specific one for your hands, sometimes your feet. But the majority of the time, it's a very specific one for your hands. Uh, and then you're going through um, many of the Patagonias or like those uh, rigid shrines that you see like the, uh, the, the door with the, you know what I'm talking about? It's the like door. an entrance. It's like an entrance. Basically, these are the entrance to the holy places of Shinto. Oh, so it's like a and marker then. It's like a marker to because you're going to the other or the out there, mm. basically, in the religion. You're going to the world of the kami <laughs> through <laughs> these cool. doorways that they set up, which I actually love. I love the, I love the symbology yeah. behind so that. Much. Yeah. Um, but 
my next note actually does bring up what you say. So the Shinto belief has its ideals in purification before starting to stay right through honor and honesty and truth and to stay away from you. What you were saying earlier, it is called Urami or grudge. Does the grudge movie make sense now? <laughs> yeah. Ah, yeah. yeah. Cause if it stays with you long enough, it'll end up being this corruptive yeah. power that changes. So you in a lot the idea, if you do wrong, the Kami within you will then become evil and seek revenge. So sort of like the grudge that always follows you in that movie kind of, it was a big personification of the ideals from, Shinto religion. Yeah. I'm sure this also has overlaps to how they expect you to behave with other people. So kind of the moral system that they were working with yeah. during those certain time periods. I mean, this this overlaps with, I mean, we, we, are, we already discussed Hinduism and Asatru really extensively, but right. this also overlaps with, you know, like, this is probably the last time I'll bring up a story or, or a story <laughs> or a Nordic story, but I wanted to riff on my Nordic boys real quick, you know. But, um, like, Ragnarok is the great purification of the world, essentially, where, like, all of the gods die and then man is reborn again without the gods entirely, which is really interesting. Um, but also, it, it reflects, like, in their the Nine Noble Virtues as well, like, honor and truth and things like that are also something that's heavily emphasized. I can't believe you didn't even talk about Ragnarok, dude. That's a huge one. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and, and, and to tie it into the other end of it, when it comes to Hindu religion... <clears throat> We are, in fact, apparently in the middle of the Kali Yuga, right? And the Yugas are these cycles of time that pass by and ultimately lead in a cyclical pattern from, you know, this golden age back into this fucking boring hellscape that we live in now. And it goes back and forth and back and forth. And so, again, this is something you see repeating. And uh, I think that it would be probably aberrant to not bring up that it doesn't exist so much in a cyclical way for Christians, but Christians might just have a very short-term view of things. Yeah, Ooh, I would think so. That's fair. <laughs> We're going to kill it and fuck it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Circling back to uh, what I was saying. So does anyone want to guess how many shrines there are currently in Japan? There's a lot. Two a lot. It's got to be thousands. 200,000. Uh, anyone else? 500,000. Okay, go ahead. One million. Okay. okay, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, uh, I want to say like like probably close to three thousand. How many people are in Japan? Don't hit me with that. I gotta okay. look that up. <laughs> <laughs> I would assume a few million, at least a few million. Yes, Melly, Melly, Melly million. Uh, yeah, that's hundred and twenty-five million. Is that what that says? Yeah, yeah that's a couple million. Ooh. Yeah, that's a couple. Wow. It was, so it's in the, it's so really in the million. Just Dean run, won the prices right round. <laughs> yeah, for real. <laughs> so that's not surprising considering they probably have a bunch even in their oh. their own homes. Sorry, sorry. Right. So the population is 125 million. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> sorry. So how many shrines how are many, there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 80,000. Okay. <laughs> oh, so, oh, okay. But if uh, you account for the household ones... Probably over it's probably way more. Right. The yeah. household deity thing, that's really important. I'm sorry. I have to bring in Rome one more time, and I'll shut up for a while. I promise. Uh, <laughs> but we'll bring Rome back the again. But, but, but Rome is so important because they are one of the first, not first, but first modern-ish representations of household religion, right? right? Where you still have a unifying religion where everyone follows it, 
but everyone still has their independent yeah they're adamant they about follow. keeping some of the things that you have there exactly. so they don't strip you completely <laughs> everyone has a family shrine in fact in again uh the aeneid again by virgil he's so good he's so good uh, in the Aeneid, one of the most important things that Aeneas brings out from Troy when it's being burned down by Odysseus and all those cocksuckers, um, <laughs> who, fun fact, in the Aeneid, Odysseus, I, known as Ulysses in the book, he literally repels down a fucking wall just so we can kill children, <laughs> just so we can no. kill kids. Anyway, so the way that a- <laughs> Aeneas escapes after, again, also, there's a murder of the leader of the town on his own family altar with the rest of his family. They're all murdered on there. It's insane. Like, it's a whole brutal thing. And so Aeneas still takes his time to pick up his family altar as well as his father and carry them all on his back to leave. <laughs> and so family gods are extremely important at this stage. And still, just we don't phrase it in the same way. It is also seen within like the Mexican religions as like yes. Catholicism as well as other ones. But going back as well as Japan to circle back the spirits of your dead uh, uh, family members as well as people and your ancestors from the past. Um, the shrine is an important symbol within all of this. Especially because you're often leaving around, either, whether it be rice, food, beans, uh, sake in some sorts, to help appease them in the afterlife or help, you know, get a certain message across to them. Then this, uh, once again, also comes back to <laughs> like both, both Hinduism and Asatru as well, because they both, they both emphasize, you know, respecting your ancestors, calling out to them, sort of idea, asking them for either wisdom or favors or something along those lines, and you get stuff from your ancestors as well. So ancestry, very important to these, um, these pagan religions, um, whether or not you want to call them heathens or heretics or what have you. They're heathens. <laughs> um, so were you going to say something? No. Okay, for sure. So with these shrines, um, they've been around for thousands of years, like I said. However, with that giant blemish that the U.S. left when annexing the Japan side after World War II, these shrines cannot be government-funded or protected or kept up. So they're mainly kept through with donations or by selling religious items. And these religious items are often used in daily rituals, and some of these parallel to other, other religions as well as other items within witchcraft. And I wanted to share a couple with you. So first we have Ima, which is a small wooden plaque, which you write your goals onto. And you hang it up in hopes that your dreams will come true. It's very wholesome. <laughs> 10 out of 10. Wholesome content. <laughs> we got Ofuda. They are talismans purchased to protect the home and the family from illness and from disparity of wealth. We have the Omumuri. The amulets worn to wear off bad luck and illness. And Daruma, small paper balls that are said to grant wishes, and they're often painted with the face of men or animals on them. So if you whisper into them, your wish could come true. And then this one has been gentrified, but I'll talk about it. The (laughs) Omakuji, the small pieces of paper said to give your fortune or future, otherwise known as the fortune cookie. Jeez. Yep. Fortune cookies were a Japan thing. However, after World War II and the 
<laughs> concentration camps. Uh, Jeez. Japan was at a smaller population within the U.S., so the Chinese at the time, with their Chinese restaurants, took upon them to, to, to look at umakuji and take it t- to their restaurants and use it within their food so that they could get and capitalize on this uh, certain ritual so they could bring it to what it is now known in popular culture as the fortune cookie. So fortune cookies were stolen. Oh, yeah. Totally. <laughs> also, I was curious about the shrines. I wanted to know what was the oldest shrine in Japan. And there's one that apparently has existed since the 700s. 700s. Damn. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was rebuilt, but then that's because Japan has a different concept of what the building is and what it means to people. We came, We kind of believe in like Western civilization in the United States that a building is not the same if it gets rebuilt. It's kind of like a new thing. But in Japan, if something burns down and they rebuild it, it's more about the area and the location they built on. So it never really changes if they're able to like get it back to its original like original build. So they're like, it's always been here. This is it's, the site we chose for. It's it. really about the place. Yeah. 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 Ex- exactly. I mean, you'll see this in you know you'll you'll see this in you know the like, Nordic peoples too. So they'll have like groves or streams or rocks yeah, or really something important. like that. That are Somewhere. dedicated to a specific deity or some sort of like influence that lingers there. Oh, sorry. In fact, in I think it was around 1570, somewhere around there, that Europeans started pouring into Japan and fucking everything up. Uh, <laughs> but one of one of the things that's always been really striking to me is that the Japanese were always a little resistant to you know. Christianity entering in because they, you know, felt like it would do the things it might do. Yeah, there's right? people who predicted predicted exactly what would happen eventually right. because of this inclusion of what they had seen as like, oh, this is the people believing that money is like the one <laughs> thing that rules everything. Like, don't right. do that, and then it ends up being something that. Which happens. is funny because one one of the ways that they ended up delineating space and it included space that enters into something like a shop yeah. uh, was that. They would take things like Christian iconography, like a picture of Mother Mary or uh, or Jesus or something, and place it on the ground in front of their shop so that if you were Christian, you had to step on <laughs> Mother Mary or Jesus to enter in. Oh, and man. so apparently a lot of Christians wouldn't do that. I know most Christians nowadays would. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but that was one of the tactics they used because it was so... There was such a focus on space and 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 this fascinating kind of uh, thought around that, and, and that was one of their kind of initial ways of combating with it. And in fact, I, I remember there was someone who was writing a graduate thesis around me, and, and I forget the real details, but I believe it was a war that the Koreans lost against the Japanese. But what what the Japanese did was it may have been the other way around. I believe it's this way. But what the Japanese did is they moved around the shrines, like the gateway shrines that were inside of Korea, uh, as a way to kind of punish them for losing the war. And it just, like, essentially fucked up the motion of the city in a way that only, like, the French could <laughs> sort out, right? Damn. And it's this, it was this fascinating kind of, like, revenge by, like, reorienting space just by changing the locations of shrines. It's a very interesting thing because, uh, like you said, with within the research, like there at some point in history with with the Shinto and Japanese religions, they become very militant 
they do not want to accept outside influence. And unfortunately, through World War II, it had to come to that. And I'll speak on that. But for a long time, they were kind of just doing their own thing. And when those certain battles or like places take effect, they're very resilient to let go of Shinto or other beliefs like that. So throwing off just a door to a, a ritual area could just completely mess up the entire thing because Japan is a very small country and has a very large population. And it kind of just throws off the entire things of daily life for them because these re- uh, religious rituals are a part of daily life that they have to go through every day. Um, but I did want to ta- talk about the statewide Shinto really quick. But I will say, for all those items that I just spoke of, they have to re- be replaced every year because you need to put more kami in that bitch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a continuous thing. It, I think it's done purposely so so that they can always have the inclusion of people coming but, it back to the same area and not forgetting about it yeah that's probably kami, one of the biggest things it's a, it's a very traditional thing yeah. put kami in that bitch put, put kami in that bitch put kami in that bitch put kami in that i didn't say it first. that means that dorian is saying let him fuck you no <laughs> wait a second <laughs> yeah put kami in that bitch now you get it Double entendre. I mean, you also have, like, I mean, I do I have specific examples? Probably not. But, <laughs> but there are. Man, but there they started off so strong. Right, right. But there are examples of, of, of pagans being converted or, you know, faux converted. Like, they pretend and then they input yeah. their own beliefs and whatnot to coincide with Christian ideals and things like that during that conversion as oh, man. well. You're giving me a great segue into mine. Oh, man. Yeah, I, I was about one, to say. I'm almost ready. I'm it, almost done. So twice. everyone has a segue, so I'm going to steal it, and I'm going to ruin everything, and everyone's <laughs> going to go quiet after I tell my story. But Hakon the Great, <laughs> who then went on. So, so oh, pe- people are freaking out right now because they know what's up. So Hakon the Great was then transferred to Hakon the Bad because Christians took over. But Hakon the Great, what he did, is he invited a whole lot of uh, Christian mercenaries, or not mercenaries, I'm sorry, uh, missionaries. Same thing. Yeah, mercenaries. Same thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah uh, accurate. He, he invited a bunch of uh, Christian uh, uh, missionaries, I almost fucked it up again, uh, over, uh, over to his home. And they all came over and they got to the beach and he said, you know what, guys? Fuck it. Never mind. Get back on your boats. Just kidding. Boats are locked. Walk into the ocean. And so they walked in the ocean, and uh, some of them lived. (laughs) I've also heard the story that they put them on the boats, and then they dropped them off in the middle of the water. Jeez. I don't know which one is the case, but one way or another, a lot of people uh, drowned for being missionaries or mercenaries. I love that. One way or another. That's a really great story. We we love to hear it. (laughs) Inshallah. All right, I'm going to finish my seg- my segment because it seems like you guys have a lot to say. Yeah, here so, comes Jonathan. He's ready. Yeah, he's to go. ready. He's like rubbing his hands together. You can see <laughs> his beard perking so up. So much good <laughs> shit. <laughs> All right, so statewide Shinto. Yes. This is a concept that was around the 1800s. It was sought to eliminate all outside forces that wished to change or modify the Shinto religion. They got really closed off and didn't want outsider forces coming in. So Thus was the distinction between God, emperor, and country. And basically the emperor was chosen to be a god at this point or seen as a god at this point. 
essentially because Kami is is Kami, like we said before, is the definition. It is God, spirit, or person. Everyone is Kami. So in a sense, it is like what we were talking about before, where you are everything. You are God, right? In your own world. However, with the statewide Shinto, it was sought to believe that the emperor was the god at this point. And after the U.S. gained the control of Japan after World War II, Emperor Showa of the Showa era, also known as Emperor Hirohito, Japan's emperor, was forced by the U.S. to tell the, his people at the time that he was no longer God, that he was a human man. He was on live television, on the radio and everything. He was meant to denounce Shinto and say, I am not a God. I am a man. And this was taking a binding to the Shinto. And basically the U.S. was trying to use this to tear it apart and basically make people step away from it and let the religion die out. Because if with the statewide Shinto and the very militant belief, if their emperor denounces himself and claims that he is a man, then the power of the kami will then subside and the religion will be sought after and genocided. Because, right, <laughs> yeah, but it didn't fucking work. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. that shit didn't work, though. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. To their surprise. Yeah. Oh, jeez. Yeah. So, oh. <laughs> yeah. So, basically, they try to destroy Shinto. Yeah. And that bitch bounced back. Yeah. I mean, that sounds about right. And that's the thing. And to this day, these rituals and beliefs are still practiced daily, weekly, monthly, and yearly. And that is my oral lesson on the Shinto religion of Japan. Thank you. <laughs> Yay. Thanks. Gomer. What, no one else is clapping? Oh, really? yeah, I'm clapping. Yeah, yeah. fuck yeah. yeah. That's right. That's right. <laughs> All right. Segue to someone else. Bam. <laughs> to someone else. Yeah, I'll All talk All right, about hit it, it John. Uh, well, uh, so I want to talk about what became known as Brujeria in Mexico specifically and parts of Cuba and certain South American countries. That's Spanish for witchcraft. Literally translates to like the like regular Spanish word is, is witchcraft. It's not like anything else. There's no multiple meanings. It's like that's the one meaning out of it. That's what I said. <laughs> <laughs> and this one's this one you have to actually go back. Like we have to go we have a timeline that we've sort of set up on how all this sort of spread out. This was the colonization of Mexico, Latin America, Central America, like all of the Americas happens around the same time that you see these uh, like people who are studying certain religions in Europe who are fleeing certain parts of their world because of the kings or queens or whoever there was like, don't do this here anymore. And so they decide they're going to get on the boat, go over to North America and start colonizing all of the people there, which includes all of the Native Americans and people who are already existing in this country. And so this there's no way to talk about what became modern witchcraft in Mexico without talking about the colonialism, because it ends up forming a lot of what ex is, what is experienced there. Cause the idea of witchcraft didn't really exist until after it was colonized. <laughs> so it ended up being something that showed up like in the early 1500s. So basically when you first started seeing the witchcraft and the like witch trials happening, this is the same time that colonialism was happening. During one that of the most period. interesting times in the world. Yeah, the there's 1500s. just so much going on Holy at shit. the same time. Holy shit. Are you safe anywhere? <laughs> no. No. There's literally not, not a place on earth, I think, that was kind of safe from anything at that time. This is also like deeply interconnected with uh, slavery that happened and, and pulling people from Africa and bringing them to any part of the Americas. And that's why the, anyone who is 
from Africa or anything you hear about is usually referred to as Afro something. And so in this case, a lot of the spirituality that came to Mexico and to other places is going to be like Afro-Caribbean because they ended up landing in those specific areas and blend it with whatever culture there is. And in a unique way, they're one of the places that was completely and wholly dominated and colonized in a way that's much different than you see in Japan. Japan was never formally colonized. They didn't have like anyone come in, completely take over the land, change their religion, change how they do, and then have their whole culture change because of what happened. The people in Latin America are still living with what happened in the 1500s because you have it in the bloodline. You have Spanish that's still spoken in a place that did not originally speak Spanish, and you see it in people's genes where you have like the really strong Spanish genes that showed up because of the colonialism. And so the idea of the brujeria or the witchcraft that showed up later wasn't even about the spirituality, and it was more about a rebellion of the hierarchy that existed during that time period. Snaps and so. All around. This is, this is something that came about to join the idea of like, we wanted to get rid of the hierarchy, become more of a community, very close to what you'd see in communism, but not quite the same because they were integrating pieces of Catholicism with things that they believed in in their own and then old pieces of their belief systems and spirituality that existed with people who were native to the area, so the Aztecs and the Mayans. I need to do a pitch for someone else. Yeah. Uh, which is, he changed his name is a weird choice because it does not point to this in any kind of signification sense, uh, but it's Bjorn Deleuze, <laughs> B-J-O-R-N Deleuze, uh, but he is a practitioner of a an African witchcraft uh, and has sent me a lot of like packages for rituals that have been, uh, even in my own strange skeptical sense, uh, very satisfying and wonderful and he's a very knowledgeable person and also very combative and marxian and so he's very fun to talk to but i might check him out on instagram but yeah when it comes to this weird like colonialized space of of both south american and african witchcraft that's been like morphed and has to rebel against it he's a cool guy to check out just just saying uh, like, well, yeah, like you're mentioning, it has a lot to do, do with the idea of whether or not the people within the area that was colonized, whether they're going to assimilate or not. And that sort of created this divide of people who accept it, whatever had happened to the country, or people who are like, no, I don't want to have anything to do with it. There's even modern interpretations of this where people refuse to speak Spanish in Mexico and in other areas because they're like, this is a colonized language and we're not going to speak it. We're going to speak the native dialects of the area. And that's starting to gain a lot of momentum in recent days. So this is something that's really interesting. And it's a change in the ideas of what has happened and they want to embrace the sort of lost culture yeah. because they did. they were very actively destroying the cultural ideas they were destroying monuments temples getting rid of any documents that that were associated with things the same way that native americans are losing their culture in north america in the last 20 years i want to say that we've lost it's probably more than that uh, yeah but we've lost something like 85 90 percent of languages yeah on the earth yeah mostly because um, they were all oral traditions that got passed down and then when you have yeah. the literal colonization and genocide it cuts off that stream of of like yeah. education that's happening well well i mean to to just feed it straightly straight into a marxian lens because i have to because i am who i am uh, um, <laughs> well that you're right though it ended up right. coming into that where that was the ideals that people were moving into yeah is that if, if if something isn't used for exchange, mm -hmm. it fucking dies because your entire life yeah. has to become trade. They put exchange, a lot of uh, right? uh, they what is the way to say it? They didn't consider it to be as important as other things, exactly. and so they then pushed it aside. Uh, and so I I really want to hear more from everyone. Thankfully, most of my thoughts about this are like 
abstract, <laughs> uh, but but about the way that language ends up functioning a lot of these systems and the way that it's been occluded and removed and 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 kind of morphed. Do people have thoughts about that? Well, I, I think it's a very interesting thing in the sense that what John's saying, because as a Mexican person that doesn't speak Spanish, I've heard it from the backhand of many people. Why don't you speak Spanish? And right. part of that is in the back of my head. It's hard. Learning a language is hard. Let's be real. It's fucking hard. <laughs> it is hard. It's so hard. Uh, but also, uh, it is a, it is a uh, how do you say, a gentrified sort of thing because of the uh, colonialism from the Spain. That bit is important, though, because it solidifies the idea that they were successful in indoctrinating all of their ideas into the country where the people who live there believe that they should be doing these things. And, and yeah. like, like you said, in comparison to Japan, where they had this like very totalitarian... They had a, they had a feudal war. Like, they were dealing with people who just wanted to rule the country, right. not other people coming in. They ended up imperializing countries near them, like right. Korea and China. They ended up just saying, you know what, fuck it. There's too much in the house already. We got to deal with this. Right. We don't, so, we don't have time for the other world. Well, there was a whole different idea and spirituality that was happening in the Americas during that time period because at the same time that you had Europe and Japan and all the other countries discovering gunpowder, you had people in the Americas who were going a much different direction who were like figuring out how to map the stars, how to make like really accurate um, star maps and that could tell them like specific time of the year, time periods. They had aqueducts, like all these things that kept them in good health were things that did not exist <laughs> like in Europe where they were throwing shit on the side of their house. So it's like they didn't bathe in Europe and all that <laughs> shit. People in the Americas bathed like daily because they had rivers. They had clean water, fresh water that was around them. So they were going a different direction. And then when you have these two ideals meet, you have the extremists who come from different parts of the world specifically to colonize and to take over the resources that were in the area because they were doing much better at that time. Yeah, now, extremely important. I'm sorry. Oh. Um, Go ahead. But but something to keep in, in mind, because I'm always so eager to point out why fucking racists are wrong, right? <laughs> um, but, but the reason that the Western world, the most simple way of putting it, the reason that the Western European world ended up succeeding so much in our contemporary age is because it's temporary, right? Oh, yeah. The, the reason that they succeeded so much is because people like the Ottomans... And the Chinese were doing so fucking well. And because Western Europe had put itself into such a nightmare, debt ontology, shithole, that they had to find weird, specific ways to work things out. They ghettoized themselves and had to <laughs> sort out very specific ways to make everything function. And guess what's going to fucking happen eventually, guys? Like, you fucking white supremacists. You're going to find that everyone else that you put into ghettos is going to find more efficient ways to do things, and they're going to fuck you in the ass, hopefully. Like, uh, sorry, I mean, this is another race war thing. I'm not asking for a race war, but I'm also asking for a race war. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how to segue out of this. Holy shit. <laughs> Witchcraft. What are we talking about? How do we use witches to, to well, win the race well, war? I, 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 had, a question, I had a question for yeah. you, though. <laughs> so, so you called it, uh, with, with the regards to the Southern American and Mexican kind of like witchcraft, it, it is called what? Well, brujeria didn't exist until like after the 1500s. Probably okay. not even until so, like way after that, like closer to the 1800s when like the colonialism in the area ended. Because colonialism in uh, the Americas, or at least in Central and South America, took about 300 or 400 years. That okay. was like the transition of time that so, you needed for like to completely dominate the area. But at the same time, 
the Native Americans were being pushed onto smaller and smaller areas. So that that it didn't exist until after that. And the reason why is because these people had to deal with then a post-colonial area where they were deciding, do they want to assimilate or do they do they want die. to like rebel against the community that's happening? But Mexico was also having a lot of pressure from the United States who were like, hey, we want to have people in this area want to take over or they wanted to like trade like forcefully. And so they ended up like you'll find in like the 80s, the 70s that they they ended up funding through the CIA a lot of like battles and wars that happened in South America because they were literally funding like through black ops missions, like giving weapons to uh, like communist not communist leaders well some in some cases communist leaders but socialist leaders as well to specifically change the area so they never really stopped being influenced by other people and so with regards to the the witchcraft as it was seen as a ideal of revolt and uh rebellion within the 1500s after the idea of colon or after colonialism colonialism coming through and really like trying to knock them down do we see uh that brujeria Brujeria. <laughs> we see that prevalent somewhat today within those cultures still, though. Yeah, so it's become a more dominant that. thing that's happening uh, because it is, by nature, uh, counterculture. So it's, it's, it's interpreted in a way that uh, is not going to be the mainstream. And the reason why is because it usually included people who were put in bad positions or marginalized. So it's going to include a lot of uh, uh, queer people, a lot of people who are black or Afro-Caribbean or any one of the mixes that happen there because there's still a lot of elitism that happens within Mexico. And so the idea behind it, or at least be the idea behind the practice, is not so much on the idea that they have sacred objects, but on the sort of energy you're going to bring to whatever practice you're doing the sort of connection you're going to make and a huge belief in the spirits that you're going to speak with because they put a lot of importance on learning lessons from your own history, from your own uh, ancestors who had to deal with all of these things that happened. There's a, there's a really big belief that people who are born today in those areas have sort of trauma that is passed down through their spiritual ancestors. And so then they want to do cleansing rituals that they'll do for people. And it, a lot of it has to do with uh, connecting with these people to bring a community together. And I guess that just goes through the idea of like familyhood and, and motherhood as well. Right. Having to raise people in these yeah. areas and trying to get pa uh, past their past, yeah. so to speak. It was also directly counter to what uh, Catholicism brought to the Americas, which was this idea of the hierarchy. And so they then had hierarchy within the church, within what they believe is God is supposed to make the ultimate thing. Uh, the belief in brujeria is not going to be in one single thing. No one is hierarchical. There's no initiation into whatever you want to do. You can do literally whatever practice you want and consider it that because you're a part of a certain group that has been marginalized. So there's no formality to it. You can kind of do your own rituals that make you feel better. And the idea was to bring people together in a common idea that wasn't so heavy on the entry. Like you have to do this, this, this to get whatever uh, uh, perspective or idea out of it. If you think about like the most reckless and evil of the like uh christian oriented uh like satanism or whatnot that's not you know luciferian well it's it's related <laughs> to luciferianism but something we'll like golden dawn <laughs> right is this philosophy as do as ye will right yeah. do as ye will as long as it harms none um and even that like second half of it is kind of limited because Aleister Crowley certainly did wrong. Oh, yeah, right. Right? Like, <laughs> heroin addict hack. raped people. Yeah, I um, agree. Yeah, <laughs> holy shit. And, and so this idea of, okay, here's our crazy idea. Everyone can do what they want, but you can't fuck people up. And the idea of that as a revolutionary goal within a space, right. like what we imagine America to be, 
where it's like, oh, everyone's free, when yeah, in fact exactly. all that actually means is that people have property, right? So it's yeah, that 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 on its own is such a massive, uh, uh, yeah, it's a divergence. It quickly gained a bad rap in Mexico because of its association with certain beliefs that included uh, like certain deities that dealt with death. And so in a lot of like uh, older cultures, like the Mayans and the Aztecs, they, they had de- like whole deities for this idea of death. And it wasn't necessarily bad. In a lot right. of ways, they were like the reaper of sorts that didn't necessarily kill you. They came to collect whatever soul was there and then help you pass along. I've got to do it. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So Georges Bataille. Yeah. The most possibly my favorite philosopher. I'm sorry, Deleuze. I know I named my account after you and everything. <laughs> Again, Dank Deleuze, Instagram.com. <laughs> no, plug that right in. Sponsored, oh, man. sponsored but, but by no. Blue Chew. But, but, <laughs> oh, and I, 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 I've done talks on Bataille because Bataille is, is still ultimately, he's probably the philosopher that I think is the most important to me personally. Uh, and one of the things he really focuses on is this sacrificial notion uh, that he ends up pulling out of people like Marcel Mauss, uh, which I'm pronouncing wrong, but I don't speak French. Go fuck yourself. Uh, <laughs> but, Monsieur <laughs> me. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, exactly. Um, but this idea of sacrifice as a way to gain something, sacrifice as a way to extend beyond something, and the ba- most simple way that i can describe this and this is again westernized and through bataille who is again a frenchman in the 20th century but he's inspired by the aztecs and whatnot i'm running out of breath because i'm hoping that i die while describing this as a sacrifice (laughs) to the acephalic god is that we become so much part of something that we give up that we become part of the universe as a whole. And the idea is that the world exists in the sense of imminence, right? Where a tiger exists in the world as water exists within water, right? A tiger hunts a deer because it's simply part of this motion, right? And human beings separate themselves from it, and we invent this idea of transcendence where we're separate from it, but that is, in the end total fallacy right and so we have to try to find a way to reintegrate ourselves into this constant motion of becoming part of the world part of that imminent world to become water and water where we need to sacrifice ourselves and sacrifice one another in order to become part of this ever moving stream of reality which is part of what the aztecs did right where the sun is the thing that gives you all of the power in the universe, right? The, the the sun gives the life to the earth. And so you have to fucking pull people's hearts out of their bodies and strip their skin off of their bones in order to give to the sun because it deserves something back, right? Because we all need to be part of this ever-moving flow of everything to everything else. And it's that's my Bataille thing. Uh, if you want to check it out, go to, uh, you know, whatever. Fuck it. I don't care. 
<laughs> well, like you mentioned, it's, di- it's tied directly to the belief system of this idea that the sun was giving them a lot of vitality. And a lot of the vitality was connected with blood, which then connected to why they wanted to remove the heart from somebody. And in most cases, they were doing this with their enemies. So what they would do is if they were warring with someone who was nearby, they'd kill someone, take their leader, take them to the top of the steps, rip out their heart, and then toss their body down. And then once they would get the blood out of the heart, take off the head, throw that down the steps. And in that way, they were thinking of, well, we're getting all the vitality from this person that is now feeding into us. Of course, it's brutal. (laughs) It ends up being one of the most violent things you might hear about. But it was because they had that belief system, like you mentioned, where they were trying to get the vitality to go cyclically through them and then through the area that they were living in. And you play sports with the head as well, (laughs) They totally did. It's it's (laughs) extremely brutal. Honestly, one of the most badass... I'm not going to lie. That sounds badass as shit. Like, you you just murdered this other tribe. You're like, fuck these people. I'm about to play fucking this hip hip (laughs) soccer game with their fucking head. And they do that shit. Like, what the fuck? But I feel like we generally think of that as an insult. Oh, totally, yeah. And I think there's a little bit of that. I think there is. (laughs) But but generally speaking, it's this reintegration, I think, that matters more than anything else. Right. And if you want to, again, I mean, I didn't want to plug this uh, necessarily, so sorry that I do that joke all the time, but now I'm doing it for real. But if you go onto the Patreon, this is for free. This is not paid or anything. If you go onto patreon.com slash truncata, T-R-U-N-C-A-T-A, and look for the UCU, the, the Utrecht talk, I give a whole explanation of Bataille and the way that uh, sacrifice works versus our common uh, Western metaphysics and the way that that kind of functions. And I think that that is uh, important. Uh, But uh, yeah, entirely free. Just go to that web page and just search for it. So is Apocalyptico, is that a documentary? (laughs) I'm so mad because I wanted to hate it. I wanted to hate it because it's Mel Gibson and he's like a fucking freak. And, uh, but it's like, it's, it's pretty accurate <laughs> as far as like <laughs> what happened during that time period. And like the, idea, I think that what, I think what it is, is it's, uh, it's extreme in, in the violence that occurred because the, the violence thing was not an everyday thing in the culture. They, they did have warring times when they would fight other tribes that were near them, but they didn't, they didn't completely dominate these other people. They would fight, people would die and then they would leave them alone. Cause then the, the feud was considered done when blood was spilt. I mean, that's also something that happens with violence as it is, right? right? Like, if you look at all the world wars, how many of those countries stopped existing? Right. Almost none of them. Yeah, Except exactly. for World War One. like, we had some true, yeah. evaporations that happened there, but they just became new countries that we see now, which, of course, is always going to happen when you have an evaporation. But it's... When people think about violence, they, they, they like to imagine it as an utter uh, annihilation of something. Right. And, and the fact is that there is no such thing. Well, I would right. I would argue that in this case it's it's different because you did have the the like complete genocide of the whole culture in those areas to the point where it didn't exist for a while and then it's why there's so much importance placed on the ancestral connections where you have to learn from what happened before and then modernize it and change what's happening now because they never really stopped being colonized in a, in a lot of ways and so then you had sort of a, a the nation and the area was never the same. No, that's a very good point. So so I I, I would have to separate something from right. a standard war versus something like colonial yeah, impact. Yeah, exactly. Because the way that those things are different, I mean, you already delineated it to some degree, but the way that they would be different in my own mind is that in a war, you simply have people fighting until someone gives up, right? Yeah. Uh, Whereas in colonialism, you have someone fighting uh, or not fighting, (laughs) 
until they're erased. Well, what's right? wild is that just not how war usually yeah. works. Well, in this case, what's crazy to me is that you can credit like three people, like three or four people, like Spanish conquistadors with the whole and they're undertaking. All rapists for some they reason. were all they Weird. like. I don't know where they found these dudes, but like literally dealing with Cortez, Pizarro, like these dudes, they didn't want to show up and take over a little area. They showed up there to kill every single person they came across and they did it. They actually were able to do it for these areas. And it's nuts that they were able to kill this many people in a short amount of time. And then they went back and people were like, you're fucking great. Like they, they had no repercussions for it. If you want to build the next Amazon, all you have to do is you have to find people with tiny dicks that have made super horrible fails uh, somewhere in their life. And uh, if you collect a few of those, you'll fucking rule the world. <laughs> oh. Yeah. <laughs> well, one thing I wanted to bring up, yeah, because um, it hasn't been said yet, but the use of drugs within certain rituals within South America and Mexico. Yes. <laughs> That's right. That's right. We're going to that fucking area. Things that naturally grew in the area, I should point out. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> plant medicine. Yes. Plant medicine, what, what, as they say. What many people would consider plant medicine and natural resources that you would end up using I, in these moments. I, I will say um, one of the most humbling things I saw was uh, there's a show on Vice called Pharm- uh, Farmilton's Pharmacopia, Hamilton's Pharmacopia, and they go through Mexico and certain areas of the South America to take ayahuasca at certain camps and, and places a lot of these people are taking them to deal with the loss of loved ones and has been a, a, a ritual for centuries within these areas. But now it's getting more popular and especially in Arizona now with the, uh, with the decline of the, of the, uh, the Western desert toad that excludes the, the five DMO DMT dimethyltryptamine. People are trying to uh, synthesize it. But back then they were using plants and one of them was the use of ayahuasca. And uh, it's a very humbling thing to see because, uh, in a sense, a lot of those shamans are gain, gain shamanistic uh, priorities and the, uh, the name of shaman through doing rituals for certain people within their communities, um, helping you know the old lady deal with her husband dying, helping a child go through nightmares within their sleep of demons falling through in their head certain things like that they go through and they give this sort of holistic medicine um this is similar to just all kinds of witchcraft because uh the idea of plant energy or plant uh medicine is prevalent throughout many cultures the humble part i have to say about this was uh the man in the episode was describing to him to a shaman how do i know if i am a shaman and uh the shaman in in spanish says well, a shaman is just an uh, entryway for information to another person, whether that be orally, through uh, ritual, or through written language. However, if you are recording and filming something and you are getting people to understand this for a newer generation, then you are, in a sense, in some way, in the new modern age, a shaman. N minus one. N minus one. Check it out. Also important, you know, so the the term that we use for psychedelics outside of the basic term psychedelics is we refer to these drugs as entheogens, right? So to fill oneself with God or with spirit. 
Uh, one of the terms that we used to use uh, in the Middle Ages and into the modern ages for someone who was insane is an enthusiast. Yeah, I right? forgot about that. And so William Blake, one of the best authors of all time, one of the greatest, greatest Christian authors of all time, he was referred to as an enthusiast all the time, which <laughs> just means that he was someone who was overtaken by God. Oh my God. And so it's really the same thing as saying this dude's on psychedelics constantly. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, um, like I was saying, with all these people trying this new, not new, but a old tradition in newer times, it really gives insight to a lot of these communities, and it gives them the support that they need to go on and deal with their upbringing, deal with their problems, deal with cartels and such as that, or just day-to-day life. Um, I find it interesting because they also had a conference about the uh, – the Sonoran Desert Toad, the Colorado River Toad, which is the one that creates five uh, DMO, DMT or bufotonin, as they say, because a white guy found a toad, squirted the shit on a fucking, <laughs> squirted the shit on the windshield, let it dry and scraped it off and smoked it. Jeez. That is literally how it started. Oh, my God. Um, there's been a decline in that population, and uh, it is also used in Native American tradition. Uh, but now there is a pushback. uh they were at a conference and they were just talking about how we could synthetically make these kind of compounds without having to harm these such toads. And the amount of people who say, okay, so who wants to try synthesizing this? Nobody raised their hand <laughs> because they're so used to using natural ways for natural medicine, natural ways of healing that the idea of using it or making it in a lab is completely alien to them. And they don't want to try that. Is the toad killed in the process? It is not. But, ah. but in the search for the toads, I have to bring this up, in the search for the toads and the evacuation or like procedure to get the toads and extract the chemical, many toads are killed. They are killed by poachers. They are, ki- they are ran over during the night. They are taken from their homes and are left to not be able to breed. Sacrifice to gain something. Exactly. It all comes back. You are everything. Yeah, you are everything, and the universe is you. And it's uh, an idea that's shared by pretty much all of these uh, religions in some sense or another. I think now we should head back towards the east because we went full circle from the east to the east and go into Greece with Justine. Yeah. So uh, I am not only going to be talking about Grecian Hellenism or... Not Hellenism, sorry, Hellenistic belief, but also Luciferianism, because I feel like the two tie into each other a lot. I I forget the name for Roman paganism, but that too also ties into it. Does anyone know the name for Roman paganism? Or is it just Roman paganism? I'm sure there's a word for it, but it's Roman paganism. I mean, I don't really care about Roman paganism that much. They bet a lot off of the Greece. Greeks. Po- polytheism, I think, is the yeah, closest you're going to get to them. Uh, so to everyone, <laughs> So I feel like I didn't quite understand the assignment the same way everyone else did. I did my study less from sort of a historical application of these religions and their effect and more of like a 
personal practice. I, I chose to talk about these two subjects because in my own practice of the craft, I feel like I started leaning more towards Hellenism, eventually found my way towards Luciferianism. So Hellenism is essentially a polytheistic religion. They focus on the 12 gods of Olympus, you know, the ones Zeus, Hera, Apollo, Aphrodite, Athena, all, all those good ones. Rapist, 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 and a lot of women. If you want to look at it that way, yeah, Damn. definitely. That's something that was always interesting about the Greek gods, because I feel like the Greek gods were sort of my first introduction to religions outside of Abrahamic religions, because I was born and raised going to an Episcopal church where, you know, we believe in one God. You were Episcopalian? Yes, I was. Oh, my God. Was That's fascinating. Emphasis. Okay. Yeah, I don't really know what That's the difference is between Episcopalianism and Christianity. Honestly, I never paid attention in church. I thought it was all bullshit anyways. It means you might be British. Yeah, just by a different name. well, yeah. I think somewhere in my lineage is uh, British. You think somewhere in your lineage you're British? You might just be Canadian. Bro, maybe. A. Anyways. Uh, fuck, what was I saying? <laughs> um, you were talking about uh, your practice within Hellenic. Yeah, religion. so uh, the thing about Hellenism is it's kind of less of a rule-abiding sort of religion, as you might see of other things. There really aren't necessarily rules, per se. They're just sort of cultural things, like how we've mentioned uh, with Norse uh, religions, about just kind of not being an asshole about certain things, being respectful to people. And that's one of the main things about Hellenistic or Hellenism religions, is that... Uh, you know, you should just not be an asshole. You should care for people when you can care for them. If someone does you dirty, do them dirty back. You know, you repay the actions that are done to you. I mean, there is that Greek tale of like uh, a beggar begging to come in because it is raining and he has no place to eat or sleep for the night. Right. And it comes to a, upon a, a stumbling couple that contemplates bringing him in at first, but then they do. And it turns out that he was actually a god yes. and rewards them for their kind deeds. Absolutely. I mean, and a, a relation with, you know, with, with Hinduism and also the Nordic religions as well as you have gods that are born from other gods. So the, like, the Nordic story, like the creation myth anyway, is Odin slays Ymir, the frost giant, and then from his corpse is born the rest of the world through fire and ice. And then a few other gods also spawn from him as well. So right. you have that. Too. And then you see that with, I believe, Athena, who was born from Zeus's headache. Yeah, from his forehead. Uh <laughs> But, <laughs> oh my god! Yes. Yo, so is this why she's always drunk and pissed off anytime she shows up in something? Dude, she's so dope. Is she always drunk? I don't think so. No, or am I thinking of Hera? No, Hera, that's someone Hera's, else. Hera's always jealous. Athena is the goddess of wisdom. And yeah, of, I think um, I'm confusing her yeah. with someone else. Uh, wisdom and warfare. But yeah, right. <laughs> Uh, but the thing about these cult religions, and the thing that's so awesome about them in my mind, is that they have this ability to acknowledge that everyone has their own little cult, right? And so let's look at this in a basic, like, let's look at it now, right? Let's, let's invent religions. Let's pretend the historical narrative worked out a little bit better than it did. And we have a god of retail. <laughs> what does the god of retail do? The god of retail makes sure that, that you face before customers come into the store. No, no, no. Well, maybe. I mean, but, but why? But why? Uh, the god of retail perhaps would bestow upon you, like, economic intelligence, the ability to um, 
to put on a good smiling face so you can sell whatever it is you're selling. Yeah, nah, they just the wanted God to. Of retail <laughs> would be appealing because I feel essentially right. retail is what is most appealing to your eye when you walk into the store. The God of retail knows how to be appealing, but knows how to defend itself. Right. If you think about someone who works at a restaurant, let's say, right. Like, those are the people, I think, that have their own gods, whether they decide to delineate it or not. The people that work in restaurants absolutely have their own cultic gods, right? So the god of the, uh, of the, the cooks is going to be very different from the god of the front end. It's <laughs> going to be very different from the god of the person that is buying the food, right? And so the way that a lot of these cultures built themselves before we fucked it up with one god that decided to smooth everything out, which did not smooth anything out, by the way. Definitely not. Um, made it so that you had the god of the retail employee who says, yes, I am a little tricky. I am permitted to be tricky, and I'm permitted to be attractive, and I am uh, permitted to be uh, capable of maneuvering in a certain way. Kind of an Athenian god in a certain way. And then you have the gods of the forge, right? You have the gods of the kitchen who are able to produce and work with fire and produce something in, in a way that's violent and kind of gnarly and, and, and all of that. And they produce their jobs in a way that is entirely beneficial to them. And they just follow that and it's beautiful. And then you have the gods of the asshole that walks in and says, Why isn't anyone but, paying attention to me? Which is but, Zeus. But Dorian, what of the god of the dishwashers? Yes! Absolutely! The god of the dishwasher is the Diluvian god. <laughs> He's the oh, god that shit. washes everything away and says, next time by fire. I like that oh, you bring this god. up, though. Of course, in an interesting way. But something that's really emphasized in polytheism is that there's so many fucking gods that you could worship. You can't worship all of them, at least not equally. And so yeah. essentially what people do who are polytheistic is they tend to gravitate towards the gods which are associated with what they do. Say, if you're a forge master, you would worship gods that are related to the forge. I personally, yeah, one of sense. the uh, Greek muses that I like to work with is Terpsichore, which is goddess of song and dance. Obviously, because I study dance as, you know, a university student. So I find a lot of good association with that. And it goes the same for any sort of other religion that's polytheistic. You find what resonates with you the most, and those are the gods you follow. And... Minus one. What up, hey Festus? So, so what I was, what I was gonna, what I was gonna, I was gonna bring in some Hinduism here for just a moment. Uh, I know, I know, right? I know, right? But you have Shiva, who is the god of wilds, natures, and creation from destruction, but was also the god of dance. And so you have this, this kind of idea of breaking down to create. So, in a sense, you could say, and as as a dancer, you may be able to con um, confirm this, is that you sort of break down your own body in order to produce something beautiful. Damn, this what was is that? True. What was that in the Black Swan episode? Yeah. Shit. But anybody who is a dancer knows that in order to reach a certain level in your skill, it takes a lot of sweat and a lot of pain. Getting your feet to point in a certain way, getting your legs to reach a certain height. It's a very painful and tedious process, but it's ultimately very rewarding in the end. So I work two jobs, right? More or less. One side of my work is that I am in, I'm sorry, 
I need to apologize. I need you to forgive me. But I work in marketing. Oh, fuck, man. The other (laughs) end is that I teach people how to write poetry. Right. And the lesson for either end is totally oppositional. But they have the same goal, right? One side of it says, I need to tell the people what they want to hear all the fucking time until I'm gone. And the other side says, I need to tell people what they feel but don't want to know all the fucking time. And then they find this place at the end where they meet together, where everyone's communicating. And the thing is that that fits perfectly into this ideal of everyone working by their own polytheistic gods, right? You have the god of marketing. You have the (laughs) god of poetry. And they hate each other, but they lead to the same place, right? And this is ideally how everything ends up working in these systems, where everything ultimately leads to Zeus or to, uh, you know, Nereus or whatever, right? But everything leads to a space, again, like what Mitch was saying, everything leads to this space that was predetermined, but everything is based upon your own kind of free will and your own fate weaving on its own. I dig that. I dig that a lot. So uh, that makes me think about one thing in particular that I found associated with Hellenism as well as Luciferianism is sort of the goals of the religion and what these deities will bring to you. Uh, I feel like of a lot of other religions sort of, the goal is enlightenment, some sort of spiritual enlightenment, which is awesome. And in this case, with Hellenism as well as Luciferianism, the goal is essentially gnosis, which is knowledge of certain things. So the emphasis for a lot of these is teaching things like the arts and the sciences, mathematics. That was something I always sort of admired more about these religions. As growing up in sort of this Abrahamic religion, I never really knew exactly what the end goal of Abrahamic religions was supposed to be, just to be a a firm worshiper of God, I guess, a devote worshiper. But the thing about these religions is they focus less on worshiping the gods. Well, it depends on what sort of sect you are within these religions, because there's, of course, a bunch of subcultures and whatnot. But... Their relationship to deities is less of a worshipping relationship, of more of like a relationship that you would have that of a mentor or a teacher. So it's less of uh, do the right thing because you'll get into heaven. And also, before you get to heaven, make more people who will also try to get into heaven. More of, hey, Justine better yourself yeah exactly the goal is self-enlightenment it's self-betterment and making the most out of the time that you have throughout the day always improving on yourself learning something new and in turn improving the lives of the people around you now here's my question for you through someone who uh with these polytheistic ideals even if as someone that you channel a certain god through greek origin someone who doesn't say if they are just like Dorian says, the marketer or the uh, the pencil maker or the poetry uh, person. I can't give a good example. Poet. The poet. Oh, why, thank you. <laughs> Sorry, oh, I'm a poet. See, I know that word. See, they, they dig deep into themselves and they go through on this venture of knowledge 
within those lessons, even if they aren't channeling a god, are they still participating in, in, in those sort of rituals, would you say? Yeah. I mean, you don't have to follow a deity in order right. to be a part of these ideologies. That's essentially what these are. They're ideological practices. They're ways of life. And they are commonly associated with these religions, but they aren't exclusive to the religions. You can be someone that follows Gnosis without devoting yourself to anything in particular. I think that's a very important I, thing to like, understand. What, like what you will do for yourself, the gods will do for you. Mm-hmm. In a sense, it's like a, it's like a you know key way of looking at it that way. You know, snaps all around. Yeah. <laughs> so something else I wanted to talk about is the way in which people might give their devotion or admiration to these gods we were talking a little bit before the podcast started about uh magic and that i think dorian said in the beginning that magic was sort of feared because people saw it as creating something out of nothing but in this sense i feel like the way i understand my magical practices is that you're sort of converting one thing into another thing um when you go to work with a deity you have to think about it as you're going to a friend you know if you're asking your friend for favors all the time and not doing anything back eventually they're going to get kind of pissed off and probably not put in the same work for you anymore and so the same thing goes when you're working with deities is you have to give them something in order for them to give something back to you and that could be anything some people will give actual physical offerings of things like food tobacco spirits um and other cases and the ways that I tend to work with deities more is doing certain things. Like for Terpsichore, to get some sort of gnosis from her, I give her my sweat. So I put in hard work towards something. And in the sweat, I am returned with more advancement of what I'm doing. I can tell you what, what went wrong. And I am going to sound like a boomer. God damn it. <laughs> okay. We used to have something called melancholia. Right. Melancholia, if you want to break it down etymologically, simply means black bile, right? Black bile, melon, which leads us to melanin. Cholia, which leads us to colic, which is the sickness that children have when they can't stop crying. The bile sickness, when they have too much bile, not enough blood. Melancholia occurs when you have pain which occurs again and again and again and you can't mitigate it, right? It's an alchemical problem. Whereas in alchemy, when you look at it in the most basic way, it takes something like a melancholic space and it turns into something which is uh, easy to be transmuted, right? Uh, the way that they generally look at it, and you can look at this old woodcutting, Melancholia Eye, and you see a lot of hints towards it in that, but it leads towards this idea within alchemy of being the alchemy of um, God, I'm forgetting the term now. It's when something we generally think of it as a term when something rots away. Uh, it's not petrify, it's when something putrefies. Thank you, good man. Mitch figured that out for us. So putrefaction also means to turn something into a black goo. Something into a goo that can be turned into anything. Melancholia and putrefaction ultimately mean, mean the same thing. 
where if you experience a pain, you can revitalize that as a new way of experiencing and producing wealth and, and, and capacity from something previous. Of course, this is extremely complicated by something like fucking, uh, you know, this nightmare world that we live in that is extremely uh, uh, colonialist and sexist and, you know, places people in different kind of hierarchies. But generally speaking, you can take this melancholic feeling and have it return to you again and again with some kind of rewards. And that is ultimately what a lot of witchcraft is, right? It's this sense of, oh, I got, I feel terrible because something terrible has happened. How do I turn that into something else, right? How do I putrefy that? How does melancholy return to me? Because melancholy always returns. Transmutation. I'm just thinking about what you said about how you give sweat to that person or to that deity. Terpsichore. Terpsichore. Um, and, re- and result to learn more and gain more from it. It's the idea of sacrificing something to gain something. Yeah. And I feel like that's a lot of where the idea of ritual sacrifice comes from. Is you are offering in something in order to transmute it and turn it into something else. Whether it be somebody's physical body their heart their blood and their head like we had mentioned previously or something a little more um neutral practical practical (laughs) yeah and i think that's something i admired about hellenism as well as luciferianism is the idea of practicality now luciferianism is sort of interesting a lot of people mistake that with satanism which are two separate things oh you mean you mean that hack (laughs) well (laughs) There's a lot of different sects for uh, Satanism. You have, uh, you know, Crowley doing I'm talking about that guy. And then you also have uh, Antoine LaVey, also a fucking hack. Damn. Damn. Uh, With Satanism, their focus, you know, they do see Satan. Well, it depends, actually. The current Church of Satan sees Satan more as like a uh, philosophical concept rather than an actual deity that they worship. He's like a libertarian angel. Pretty much. Damn. And uh, Levey and Satanism, I don't know too much about it in particular, but I know their appeal is a little more materialistic. There isn't, honestly, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to all Leveans out there, and I'm kind of not also. There isn't much to know. Yeah, honestly, sort of the principles of Satanism is do what thou wilt. It's, That's about as it. As long Damn. as it technically doesn't harm any, except for when they step on your toes, then you can kind of do it, and it's all fucking thing. Yeah. Versus Luciferianism, it, it worships more, it not really worships, but it appreciates a larger pantheon of deities. You have these deities of the Goetia, which Goetia, I believe, is a Hebrew word for sorcerer, uh, which is a term that came from specifically the sorcerer Solomon, King Solomon. Lester Key of Solomon, you probably heard those things before, who was a Jewish king and also sorcerer who commanded the demons, per se. Now, Luciferianism, yes, the pantheon of Goetia is demons. You have demons like Lucifer, Azazel, Beelzebub, Asmodeus, all those, all those good guys. And honestly, they're, they're pretty interesting when you really look into them. There's a lot of bad rep around demons because, you know, 
religion as far as uh, Christianity and Catholicism go, paint them as being sort of the bad guys. But Luciferianum, Luciferianism teaches that there is no good or bad. There simply is. And it really is a detention of your will and your intentions behind that. Also, Song of Solomon, horniest book you've ever read. <laughs> yeah, Solomon's kind of an asshole. It, it's kind of like with all these uh, inter- intersections that, depending on geography and culture and ideas, that majority of these religions and rituals ultimately believe in the same thing. Do what you will, live your life, venture and explore, but try not to harm in your way while you learn. And I think that is like ultimately what the goal is mm-hmm. with all of these uh, areas. And that's, I mean, we haven't touched every single area, yeah. but I'm pretty sure the ideals are from, are pretty much set in stone for all of these. Right. So hear me out. This might be crazy, but what if we defined all of this as a battle between the, uh, qualitative or the quantitative where everything is mathematized and and is sensible and is unified versus that which is qualitative and everyone has their own gods and everyone kind of functions the way that it works for them and everything uh you know you do as you will as long as it harms none uh and minus one uh good night i love you Please take your meds. I'm just yeah. <laughs> yeah, please, you're taking your medicine. Please take mine too. You share it with your friend. Well, I mean, just like, I mean, that's the thing. It's it's the belief that be kind to one another, and continue with your journey. Mm-hmm. I I think the 1980s classic Bill and Ted's Awesome Adventure says it best: to uh, be kind to one another and. Party on, dudes! Be excellent to one yeah. another. Yeah. And party on, dudes. Yeah. Excellence. All right. Should we, wa- should we walk out? Yeah. Yeah? It's getting late. It's getting late. Everyone put your shirts back on. <laughs> They're already on. Done. Okay. All right. I'm going to walk us out. Thank you for listening to Bringing Down the Grindhouse, a podcast where we discuss horror in media. And featuring on this episode, we have Dank the Luz, a.k.a. Dorian, a.k.a. a sect of the Benzo Rehab Dungeon. Thank you for coming on with us. And we would like to give some information to you all. We have our Patreon, which you can subscribe to for $2 a month. You could recommend us a piece of horror media to cover on our episodes. And then you could also keep up to date on our new episodes through our social media. We have the Instagrams, the Twitters, and the Facebooks. Also, we have our Teespring where you could buy merch as well as shirts and hats. So check that out. If you've endured with us throughout this incredibly long episode, we thank you and we love you. And I'm sure we'll be back to analyzing movies soon enough. If you sat around even longer than that, uh, I would like to invite you to hang out uh, on my Patreon. It's patreon.com slash T-R-U-N-C-A-T-A, Truncata, where we teach people poetry, philosophy, and all sorts of nonsense that you can only feed to gods other than Christ. And, um, yeah, I don't know, go fuck yourself. Check out uh, Benza Rehab Dungeon. I don't know, share your medicine, eat my ass. All right, guys. Uh, hey, Mitch. I 
love you. Did you talk to Candace recently? No, who, who's Candace? Candace dick fit in your mouth. All right, John, oh! cut the episode. Oh! It. I knew it was going there. <laughs> a bunch of fucking degenerates. Goodbye. Hey, I'm Mitch. I'm Mer. I'm Justine. I'm Jonathan. I'm a pig person. Thank you.